Hi, I'm Mike from Chicago. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. It's the best decision you'll make all day. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun. Uh, a bitter cold blast has been sweeping the nation. It is freezing uh, across the United States. Not here, but pretty much everywhere else in the United States. So cold, in fact, the mercury has dropped down to Jeremy Piven's ankles. It's, just <laughs> right, right out of it's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Spike Ferriston, was uh, about as successful a television writer as you can be, having written for uh, many amazing programs from uh, The Late Show with David Letterman to Saturday Night Live to Seinfeld. Uh, he even wrote a script for The Simpsons, and even some of his uh, failures were quite noble ones, like uh, uh, the very funny Dana Carvey show. Now he's a late-night talk show host on Fox, and Fox's longest-tenured ever late-night talk show host at three seasons, uh, and his show has just been expanded from a uh, half-hour format to an hour format on Saturday nights. Uh, it's called Talk Show with Spike Ferris. And Spike, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thank you. It's, Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you, and I'm really happy to hear... What is the sound of young America? It's what this it right here. Like? This is what it sounds like. You're not wearing your headphones. That's why you can't hear it. Is there? Is it in there? Yeah, absolutely. You can hear... If I put these headphones on, I'm going like to hear you young America? Hear, it's like you can hear the ocean if you put a shell up to your ear. I hear it. It sounds good, It's like right? a hiss. It's warm, though. <laughs> it's warm and newly politically engaged. It's lovely. Um, welcome to the show, Spike. Thank you. Thank I was, you for having me. I was really happy to hear that you're also a stuffed squirrel enthusiast. I am. Or a I used to be. semi-retired stuffed squirrel yeah, enthusiast. Yeah, I had many of them, and when I got married, my wife started picking them off. You know, one at a time? It seems like the kind Here's of the thing... Here's the unfortunate thing. As yeah. a comedy writer, you collect odd things. I noticed uh -huh. you have a stuffed squirrel. I became <laughs> yeah. a collector of stuffed squirrels of sure. various forms. They were gifts. Somewhere along the line in my move from New York to L.A., I caught stuffed squirrel mites or shouldn't say i the squirrels did and the fur started falling off and that was just enough opening for my wife to start going get those out of the house please <laughs> well because you don't know what a, whether a stuffed squirrel might despite its name might not be specific to well, the stuffed, stuffed squirrel what i found is a stuffed squirrel starts becoming less funny when it starts losing its hair it's not as cute <laughs> when it's got big patches of exposed dry froggy skin that's where that's where you know I can't disagree with her. She was right. Get it out of the house. We're going to put the china out. We want to have dinner parties. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Did you... Um, you've always been a, a comedy writer in your career to this point. Before starting talk show, you'd always been a writer. Mm -hmm. um, when you first imagined a career for yourself in comedy, was it as a writer or as a performer? Well, you know, I before I did anything, I thought I was a musician. I really thought I was... Jimi Hendrix reincarnated. You went I, to Berkeley College of Music, which is the place I went to where College of Music. Before that, though, I was musicians. kind of a kid that was like beat up on in high school and discovered that if you played in the rock band and, and you sang songs, like Stone songs, that people were going to think you're cool. And I thought, well, I'll just keep this going. And I went to Berkeley College of Music and very quickly learned I had, you know, 
no talent, <laughs> not compared to some of the kids that were there. Well, it takes something to get into that. That's the not most really. prestigious, popular it is. music school. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's legend largely. I think what, what you need is to pay tuition. Uh-huh. That's it. <laughs> I don't know. That was my experience. But well, maybe that's I'm... your entree into the lucrative career of a professional musician. It's an investment. <laughs> that's right. But what I did discover there was I got kicked out of the dorms three years in for throwing light bulbs out of an eight-story window on a Mass Ave there. And... Uh, not too long after that, I saw David Letterman doing it on his show, and a light bulb did go off in my head. I went, whoa, that guy's getting paid a lot of money from networks, major networks, to do what I just got kicked out of the dorms for. And I thought, this is a career. I didn't even know it was possible that you could get paid for such actions. <laughs> and uh, started looking into, you know, I'd watched a ton of TV. I was raised kind of by, t- by TV, like a lot of us of that generation, and just thought, well, I'll just do this. When you had that epiphany that this was a thing that you could do, you were, you know, in the middle of music college. It's not like you were a, a music major at UMass Amherst or something like that. You were yeah. in a real music school. What what did you do about it? That's a that's a good question. It was tricky spot for uh, someone in the at the end of their third year of school because <laughs> you have to stop and go. All right, I've made a huge mistake here, <laughs> and you know I really didn't have that. It was a, it was a lucky uh, a lucky coincidence in the bar I was working at. Um, a girl walked in, a new cocktail waitress, just got in from New York, wearing that yellow Letterman jacket. I mean, this is just a weird coincidence, another strange coincidence. And I said, where did you get that? That's my favorite show, Late Night with David Letterman. She said, uh, I just broke up, uh, I just moved from New York and I broke up with the graphics guy there. She goes, why? I go, well, can I have the jacket? <laughs> she said, no. <laughs> okay, second to that, could you get me an internship? And she said, sure, you know, uh, the guy's still in love with me. He'll do anything. And the next day she came in, she goes, the internship's yours. And that became an easy place to step out of school and go. And I had to talk to the dean of admissions there at Berkeley, you know, and say, I know this really isn't music, but is there any way you can give me credit for this? Otherwise, I can't do this. And to, the, to his credit, you know, they, they did. He goes, we're not going to give you credit, but I'll say we're giving you credit because I think this is a good opportunity. And I kind of took it from there and never came back. You were a receptionist after you were an intern, yeah. intern right? It, when you're an intern or a page at NBC in New York, it's uh, pretty much the dream job is a paying job. doesn't matter what you're going to be doing. And, and I got offered early on, I was actually interning on Letterman after that and didn't want to leave because that was the job to have at that point for me. And uh, But I got offered the receptionist job at Saturday Night Live, and they made me take it. It's uh, Thank God they did. What was the first thing that you actually wrote successfully? I wrote, well, that or season... I should say professionally. The first thing you Well, it's not professionally. I mean, what I started doing, and I, again, I wasn't really thinking about being a writer at that point, but... Well, I was sitting in front of Dennis Miller's office, and I saw the writers turning in the jokes, and he, they would hand them to me, and when his door opened, I'd hand them to him, and I started reading, and i go, well, you know, I could do that. I'm sitting here all day reading newspapers. Why don't I just add a joke to the headlines I'm reading? And I spent a good part of that season writing jokes and getting nothing on, but the very last night, Dennis did one of my jokes, and uh, I can't, I never remember what the joke is, but it had something to do with something called Disney Dollars, and... Uh, <laughs> Some, uh, I can't remember what the rest of it was, but he did the joke that night, and from there on in, I was hooked. I went, whoa, this is great. I love this. I'm communicating an idea in a funny way and getting laughs, and the following season, I started writing a lot and started getting on sometimes five jokes uh, per weekend update, and, you know, that was it. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Spike Ferriston, is the host of Talk Show with Spike Ferriston on Fox. 
Earlier in his career, he spent time writing for David Letterman and then Jerry Seinfeld. He started out on that show without much experience in sitcoms. I didn't know how to write half hours. I'd written one uh, script for The Simpsons that didn't go too well. You know, I think I actually ended up with two lines and it was completely rewritten. And then I went, oh, man, this is a lot harder than I thought it was. And when I went to Seinfeld, luckily for me, you know, they knew I was a new writer off a talk show. And, and, and for any new writer, you, you were mostly starting with ideas. They wanted to hear ideas more than see you script jokes up. They would, if you could outline the whole episode... Larry and Jerry would take it home, uh, you know, dialogue-wise, and you had time to kind of catch up in maybe your second or third script of the season. There's a sort of a tonal shift sort of halfway through the run of Seinfeld, right around the time when you uh, joined the show, where it started to be a little bit sillier and a little bit more yeah. outwardly pointed. Were you? Could you see that happening from the inside? Well, that's, you know, that's when Larry left. I think is what you're talking about. It was that season, uh, the last two seasons. But that, you know, it, obviously Larry David is a is a pretty big voice. You know, we see him on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it just, uh, it just, it, it was just different without him. You know, it's you're you're smiling in a way that suggests that it was it was fun for you to. That see. show was amazing to work on. When Larry was there and when Larry wasn't there, it was it's one of the, you know it's one of the situations you hear it a million times. It trickles down from the top, and it just happens to be that the guy at the top of this show, you know, who's a good friend of mine, but before we were friends, is just a friendly, good laughing, funny person. Who the whole time you're there, you know, the show's just about making people laugh. That's it. It's a very simple idea. Let's just go out and make people laugh and not get too caught up in anything. Medium turkey chili. Medium crab bisque. I didn't get any bread. Just forget it. Let it go. Um, excuse me. Uh, I think you forgot my bread. Bread? Two dollars extra. Two dollars? But everyone in front of me got free bread. You want bread? Yes, please. Three dollars! What? No soup for you! Your big bio point uh, when you started on a talk show was was having written the uh, Soup Nazi episode of Seinfeld, which mm -hmm. is, a, a, you know, a fantastically brilliant episode of Seinfeld. Y you were just saying about having ideas for the show. Are there ideas that you had for the show that you were particularly uh, proud of that uh, manifest themselves on the screen that that weren't, you know, huge cultural phenomena like the, like the Soup Nazi? <laughs> Well, they were always funny. You know, what I loved about that show, absolutely loved, was in right down to the Soup Nazi. You could go into that show, into the room, and pitch ideas. You know, they encourage you to do this. Larry and Jerry would say, just, you know, when you're at a cocktail party or you're out on a date, is there something that's kind of nagging at you? You know, hold on to that and come in and tell us that story, because maybe it's, maybe, you know, they'd say story. We'd go, story? <laughs> so, you know, and, and the Soup Nazi is a good example of that. Like, I had done my first pitch session, never done a pitch session for a half hour, but I was told before I went in that if, if you have Larry and Jerry laughing out loud, you know you've sold a story and they're going to start you writing. I pitched uh, two pages of stuff and didn't get that reaction. And then with, you know, I kind of had the flop sweats and I sweaty. And then I just started launching into this story, not as a pitch, about this guy who I bought soup from every day who used to yell at me. And they call him the soup Nazi. And then I started hearing them laugh. So I started telling them more and more. And then they said, that's it. That's the one we want you to do. And I went, w what do you mean? <laughs> I'm just telling you a story because I'm nervous. They go, no, that's your first script, the soup Nazi. 
what are you gonna get? I'll decide at the last minute. But you better decide, sister. You're on deck. <laughs> Sheila. Hey. Uh oh. What is this? You're kissing in my line? Nobody kisses in my line. I can kiss anywhere I want to. You just cut yourself a soup. How dare you? Come on, Jerry, we're leaving. Jerry? Do I know you? That's kind of how it began. And then later on, once you realized you could uh, flex that muscle a little bit, you, you know, you might use it for revenge. <laughs> there was uh, an episode. I had been dating a girl who uh, cheated on me with George Hamilton's personal assistant. Sure. And, uh, and I think the wig master, uh, there's a, a story about the wig master who's gay picks up George Hamilton's personal assistant. <laughs> and that was a little act of stupid revenge, you know, which I'm sure he ended up being flattered by. There was only one George Hamilton's personal assistant, but we used to do stuff like that all the time. In fact, I remember Larry wanting to change it to Cheetah Rivera's personal assistant and when he rewrote it and, he, and i said can we put that back and he's why and i told him the story and he goes oh revenge sure yeah right now and he put it right back into the show he loved it ethan yes hi it's me jesse uh, george hamilton's personal assistant right right how are you good good to see you yeah, this is jerry hello yeah. Um, Ethan, what brings you to town? I'm touring with Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You're kidding. Listen, maybe you and I should, um, get together. Have you been on the slide at Club USA? It's intense. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you asking him out? Yeah, I guess you could say that. Right in front of me? How do you know we're not together? Two guys sitting, laughing, drinking champagne coolies? No, I just didn't think you were. Well, we're sitting here together. Why wouldn't you think that? I don't know. I just didn't. Well, it's very emasculating. If you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, you get the impression that Larry David lives a life where, in any situation where he isn't making a really strong choice one way or the other, he's at least imagining a fictional situation in which he does make right. a really strong choice one way or the other. And I wonder if writing on a show, Seinfeld, that sort of shared that premise Definitely. um did that affect how you you know went through your day-to-day -day life no that was that was part of what they asked us to look for for stories you know if you didn't do it what did you want to do was a very important little piece of seinfeld story formula and larry definitely uses that <laughs> but you know we all they they he from time to time calls up and asks everybody to come in if they want and pitch stories and things that are going on so i i I think I did. I pitched one or two this year. I don't know if he's going to use any of it, but it's really the only little place to tell those stories. We'll have more with the host of Talk Show with Spike Ferriston when we come back on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. As anyone who's ever attended a liberal arts university can tell you, the most pressing problem in the world is a lack of awareness. And the most important thing you can do to change the world is to engage in awareness raising. That's why we've created the Darkish Teal Ribbon for Maximum Fun Awareness. Display this powerful symbol on your lapel or 
on your MySpace page, in a forum signature, in the sidebar of your blog, or on the bumper of your car, and you'll be taking a stand against ignorance. Specifically, ignoranceofmaximumfun.org. Visit our blog at MaximumFun.org slash blog and click on the darkish teal ribbon in the sidebar. You'll be led to a wide variety of darkish teal ribbon options to help you raise awareness in all your digital endeavors. If you want to raise awareness in the real world, you can get your own darkish teal ribbon by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope to Darkish Teal Ribbon, 720 South Normandy Avenue, number 512, Los Angeles, California, 90005. You'll also find that address on the About page of our website. Or create your own darkish teal ribbon in any medium you desire. Try creating a giant papier-mâché head, like the Ralph Nader head that haunted my nightmares from late 1999 to mid-2001. We've got a post on the forum to chronicle your best efforts, and we're giving out periodic, completely random prizes for those doing a particularly impressive job. Remember... Ignorance may be bliss, but awareness raising is whatever is one better than bliss. Today is the day to display the darkish teal ribbon for MaximumFun.org awareness. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Spike Ferris, and he cut his teeth writing for The Late Show with David Letterman and Saturday Night Live. Now he's made his return to Late Night, now as the host of his own program on Fox. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Wow. Did you all see President Bush's farewell address last night? Did you all see that? Bush asked the networks for an hour to tout his presidential successes. He wanted one hour of network time. He said, I'd like to talk about my successes. The network said, okay, but how are you going to fill the other 59 minutes? (laughs) How would I do that? Fox, by the way, said an hour. Sure, what the hell? We gave one to Ferriston. What I loved about Late Night is the immediacy, that you could read a newspaper and write about it, or you can communicate ideas quickly, not write a script that might air seven or eight months later, that the references then are kind of different. So, And, and, and I also like the, uh, the notion of you know me in front of the camera now picking the jokes. It seemed like a natural progression. You know, why don't I try something different, something a little scary and something that I, you know, I don't think is going to work, but why don't I try it so I can at least check it off my little list of things to do. What did you do to try it? I mean, there's, you know, we're talking about an ambition to something that, you know, in terms of network television talk shows, there's five right you know and even even if you can't cable there's eight well, or yeah, something the first thing i did was i got behind the idea myself uh-huh. <laughs> i really committed to it the second thing i called my agent up and got got him behind it and we kind of we we built the show from there and from there we started taking meetings from there we sold it a couple times but not in the right places it kind of you know fell out and then we found ourselves, uh, we were about to give up on it, and my agent called me and said, why don't we go in? I have a friend over at Fox. They don't have a late-night show. I think we could probably do a presentation, which is like a very, very low-budget pilot, next to nothing. And, we, you know, we just happened to walk in on a day where they were kind of happy, and they said, sure, why not? I think based on the Seinfeld credit, nothing to lose here. We went And then we uh, pitched it to Mike Darnell at Fox, who had just bought a reality show called Who's Your Daddy from these same people that I had pitched to. 
uh, which is a show that I don't think worked out for them. But that day they thought it was going to work out. And they said, <laughs> sure, well, we'll do this too, Mike Darnell said. And we'll uh, here's some money. Just go shoot a presentation. And, it, you know, we just kept building it from there. And then I then I called Jerry up. He said, I'll be the guest. And then I went back with Jerry to those people. I said, I need more money. I want an audience and I want a stage. And we borrowed the Best Damn Sports uh, set, which is a show that was shooting. And and then I just wrote a bunch of jokes with a couple writers I knew and uh, kind of did a very low-budget weekend update, I would call it. And uh, much to my surprise, after we turned it in, Gail Berman, who was the president of Fox, called up and Darnell and said, we love this. You know, I was shocked. I was really shocked that I got that call because that's not generally the call you get for something like that. What performance experience did you have when you put this whole thing together? None. You know, none. I had to very quickly get up to speed. And that, you know, meant just, you know, I called people like Jerry and I called Louis C.K. and, and a lot of other people I know. And I go, please just give me one tip. You know, Jerry's tip was a loud performance will cover a bad performance. So just speak loudly and no one will know how bad you are, Spike. That's his direct quote. <laughs> you know, it was little, little things like that. And then, of course, what I had seen. And then I worked with a camcorder for weeks, you know, with a producer. Jennifer Heffler was this producer I was uh, who was assigned to me. She and I would just sit in her room, and I would just get critiqued on a daily basis. This is what you're doing wrong. Try this. Do that. And I would try and listen rather than be defensive, and I found that to be a pretty good, you know, pretty good way to learn something quickly. What were you doing wrong? Oh, I'm still doing lots of stuff wrong. I mean, I've just now <laughs> eliminated hand problems. I mean, there... You have to be an exaggerated like version. Or there's all no. There's like you like you start karate chopping. You don't know you're doing it. You'll start doing that. It feels, but you see it on TV and it looks like you're a, a crazy lost in space robot out of control. There's uh, you know you have to be a slightly exaggerated, more interested person. Instead, you know you want to be kind of cool and you'll just start talking like that and you'll look and you'll go, man, is that boring? And and, and TV too is. Uh, you want to, everything again with hands and face, you want to be moving slowly. If you move too quickly, jump around like that, people get nervous and they change the channel. So there's just, there's lots of stuff. It's a, it's a process and I am, I am definitely in the middle of it. Did you feel more confident when, uh, they said they loved it or less confident because it meant you had to do it on TV? No, I was shot. I almost crashed the car. I mean, I was, I was in my wife's Volkswagen Passat and I had to pull over because it felt like the back of my head had been blown up because <laughs> it was something that I, you know, it was like a dream come true moment, which you don't expect to get in life. You don't, I don't, I didn't at least, you know, but I was like, wow, is this real? And I was shaking. I was literally shaking to my core. Like, I cannot believe what they just said to me. And uh, I remember sitting there in the car for like 15 minutes going, whoa, now I could actually be doing this. <laughs> and I, can I do this? You know, you know that feeling like I can do this. All right, go do it. Really? Can I do this? That's, that's what you then start to feel. Feels so good to be breathing TV air again. I, I just want to thank you for that round of applause and, and, and just say right off, uh, right off the top of the show, this is our first show back from the writer's strike, and we have reluctantly returned without writers. And uh, w what I'm about to say, I guess, is kind of obvious, but I really feel like I need to explain this. I don't kid myself. At the end of the day, all of the talk shows look up to the two giants of late night, right? There's Letterman and my show. So... So when, uh, when Letterman announced his return, the whole world was banging down my door going, what will Spike do? 
Dave versus Spike. Spike versus Dave. I'm sure you saw it play out in the press, and you're all probably very tired of it. So I've decided to come back too, but with one very distinct difference. Until the strike is resolved and the writers get what they deserve, my pencil is down and the entire show is going to be written by Jay Leno. So there you go. He's doing all of it. He's going to do the whole thing. What did you want to do differently when you first started out with those uh, half-hour shows? Well, you know, a lot of a lot of I've talked to some uh, like Jimmy Kimmel. I've I've heard the story. Everybody wants to reinvent late night, but it's it's tricky because you can go too far. And uh, you know, the the phrase you hear is evolution, not revolution, which is very important phrase when I think about my show and the direction I'm taking it. And there are two separate battles going on. There are how do you make it different so it stands out, and how do you just do a normal show with your very tiny budget? There are two things that happen side by side. You know, what what I ended up with are things that I didn't think mattered. Like, I don't think it matters if you wear a suit and tie. I just don't think it matters. I don't think it matters if you're sitting behind a desk. And I don't think it matters if there's blue on the screen a lot as the color as other shows. What I, to me, what matters most is that my show is funny. That when people are watching, they go, wow, that's not a joke I would hear David Letterman do. And that might even be a little distasteful. <laughs> but boy, is that funny. You know, uh, last week I was I went to an inaugural party uh, where they were watching the inauguration on big screen TVs and with a little device that turned it off. And I was able to turn off the inauguration during, you know, Obama's swearing in, you know, and uh, that ended up to be pretty funny. I brought a little device that turns off TV sets and we've been invited upstairs to a high priced luncheon where they're watching the inauguration on TVs and I'm going to turn off TVs. The TVs keep going off. The TVs keep going off. And what do you attribute that to? Technical difficulties. Are you sure it's not the gods from higher up going, maybe? Maybe Obama shouldn't be president? No, my gosh. Now, I don't know that you'll see Jay Leno doing that or David Letterman, but it's what Spike and his guys do, you know, uh, so that's what I like to be different. I like to be, I like the comedy to be different. And I like the, you know, I think that is what is going to continue to make the show successful. Now, you know, one difference that I noticed a lot is often um, when you see a, a late night television talk show, um, like say uh, the Craig Kilborn late, late show, mm-hmm. what you'll see is, um, you know, 15 minutes of comedy and uh, uh, half an hour of the most famous person they could get on the phone right. and get to come in, which, you know, for for example, on that show, which I'm using just because it's not on TV a lot, was often, you know, a model or something like that. Right. <laughs> um, I was looking at your guest list earlier today and you're looking and, and I was looking at, you know, 85 percent people who are funny for a living, whether right. they're actors or, or comics or whatever. I was just watching an episode of the show. And the second guest uh, promoting The Wrestler, in, in which he has a very small part, was the comedian Todd Barrett. Yeah. Um, he's a fantastically funny stand-up comedian. Um, was that a choice on your part or, or on the part of your team to to make the talk segments of the show something that was funny and, and not just famous? Yeah. We always prefer funny over famous. Funny, uh, and in that particular case, for us, it was a home run because he happens to be in The Wrestler, too. But to be honest with you, I would have booked him 
without him have, having been a wrestler. We like funny people who can just come on the show again and just make people laugh. And if they're quirky and their faces that are a little unknown, that's that's you know a good thing for us. We're we're trying to you know we have this kid uh, Bo Burnham on a couple times a season who is a, a YouTube phenom at eighteen but who I saw at the improv over the summer, last summer, and I thought for a kid who was, he was 17 at the time, he was performing like Steve Martin. I mean, he had such control over his performance that it blew me away. So immediately he goes right into the show. You know, we would rather discover people like that than, you know, we, we'll, we'll definitely put Tom Hanks on and Jerry Seinfeld on, but we, you know, what's exciting for me is putting on new talent and finding new people and, 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 lesser-known uh, comedians who we think are funny. You just stepped into uh, the hour-long slot that was uh, formerly the territory of Mad TV, which has reached the end of its long run, which which presumably will disappoint 12-year-old boys everywhere. But <laughs> um, what uh, that must be kind of scary because you're essentially being asked to you know, try actually stepping up to the plate rather than... Mm -hmm. um, operate in a sort of, um, expectationless void. Yeah. It, the whole experience can be scary if you want to let it. It's, uh, I have a good staff. I have good writing staff and I have a great producer, Mike Gibbons. And they, honestly, they make it easy for me. And, and what we do, our part of that is just putting on a funny show. What the network does with it, that's their business. Whether they do it it's Saturday at 11 o'clock for an hour or Saturday back at, at midnight, it doesn't really matter to us. It's uh, What's really cool for us is that we don't do it five nights a week yet, and it's, it's still a novelty. And it's really, uh, if you were to come by the show, you'd see that we're having a really good time putting on a show. And we're really kind of – here at the end of season three, we're still excited to do it week after week, you know. And you don't see that a lot on, on shows, especially stripped-out shows. They're a little – you know, they can be a little burned out by that point. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show, Spike. Thanks for having me. Spike Ferriston is the host of Talk Show with Spike Ferriston, which runs Saturday nights on Fox. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music, written and performed by Dan Grayson, with help from myself, interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show's edited by Nick White. Our intern is Brian Fernandez. As of this recording, there are a few open slots for Max FunCon for folks on the waiting list. If you're not on the waiting list, you can email waiting list at maxfuncon.com if you're interested in finding out more about maxfuncon visit maxfuncon.com i guess that's about it we'll see you next time on the sound of young america